Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we will continue our work through Genesis 1 through 11. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for the church. Uh, I will pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and dig into God's Word. Uh, King Jesus, we come to you today as people in need. We are in need of you. We are in need of your truth. We are in need of your guidance. We are in need of your gospel. I pray that we know we come to you today with empty hands. I, I approach you with empty hands. I open your word. I, I pray just now that the things that are here that are of you would shine. The things that are of me would just be forgotten. And that you would empower our work here uh, to enjoy you more and to glorify you more and to know you more with absolutely everything we have. I pray as we come to this weighty text that you would speak to us, you would instruct us, you would guide us and lead us. Please send us your spirit that we might see you and know you uh, and help us as we come into your presence now. Uh, Lord, uh, guide us. God, I pray these things. For your glory and for our joy, and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so we are in Genesis chapter 4. We are in the uh, Cain and Abel story. And as we approach this story, I think there are three things that could get in our way of actually hearing what is here for us today. Uh, the first of those is the fact that this is the Cain and Abel story. This is Genesis 4. Uh, this is one that, that society and culture uh, and people who have never even cracked a Bible, are. this is a story they're familiar with. Uh, and we always need to be careful as we walk into these familiar stories that we don't tune out what's actually here. Um, secondly, we live in a time and a place where this story is not as shocking as it's supposed to be. Uh, as, as we come to this story, this is the story of the first murder in human history. Uh, it does not go into graphic detail, uh, and no one writes a song to glorify the act. Uh, it's serious, it's sober, uh, and, and, and in our time and in our place, for a thousand reasons, uh, we can read right over these things, and we don't weep, and we don't cry, and we're not surprised at such horrible, horrible things. Um, thirdly, I think we're pretty good at distancing ourselves from things like this. We are pretty good, and, and well, uh, we're pretty good at looking at something like this and saying, well, I'm not that guy. This isn't about me. This is about some guy. I've never killed anybody. This doesn't have anything to do with me. Uh, uh, but when we do that, we distance ourselves from what God has for us here uh, in this text because this text is a case study in brokenness. This is a, a case study in the broken world in which we live. And so much of these early chapters of Genesis are here to help us see our greatest need, our greatest need that we can't actually fix. We are broken. We are sinners. We do things. We are self-centered. We are self-serving. We are selfish, and we need a Savior, and that Savior is not this guy. I can't save myself, and neither can you. Uh, we've tried 10,000 projects to make ourselves better, uh, uh, to improve upon ourselves, and at the end of the day, no matter what happens, you're still right there with you, as Cain will find himself uh, at the end of this story. Uh, and so as we turn to this, we need to see and know, even as we enter into it, we are Christians, which means this can be handled as Christian scripture. We know the end of the story. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cain tries 10,000 things to fix his own life or, or, or to get somewhere or something in life. And at the end of the day, they all come up empty. And, and so as we approach this text, I just want to look at three things. Why is this here? Uh, how do we handle it? And how does it fit into the big picture? Because if you just take this narrative, uh, it, it kind of has the, uh, the feeling of Ecclesiastes. 
there's kind of a hopelessness at the beginning and the end of this story uh, in and of itself. But as we dig in, uh, I'm just going to work through it. I'm going to read it, and we're going to answer these questions. So if you'd start with me, if you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. You can grab one. I am in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Uh, I am in the ESV. Verse 1. Uh, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Uh, again, this is one of those things when if you just sort of take it at face value, you're like, why did he even say that? Well, up to this point in time in the story, the only thing we've heard is about God creating with verbal fiat and then also creating the first humans out of the dirt and out of rib, and he's just the one creating. He's the one making people at this point in time, and now they're involved in sort of that overall task. Uh, and, and here we actually hear, oh, now people are coming from people. Now Adam knew, his, uh, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel is a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock uh, and the fat of their portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offspring, but for Cain and or for his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Okay. This is where I get revealed to be a horribly, horribly ignorant urbanite. Uh, but here we go into the agrarian details of the Cain and Abel story. Uh, so as we approach this, you may have heard a number of people try and, if you're familiar with the story, you've heard people talk about it, people try and make a big deal out of different pieces of the story. Oh, so Cain's growing wheat or whatever, millet or, or ancient grains, like in your cereal, I don't know why they're ancient, wheat's not, but there it is. They're growing his thing, and the guy over here, well, he's doing goats, and, and maybe God likes goats better than he likes ancient grains or, or whatever, and people can make a big deal out of this, but I think it actually misses the whole point of the story. The interesting thing about this couple of paragraphs is there's a lot of really, honestly, normal human stuff happening here. This is a lot about the human condition. And sometimes when we get to a text like this, we, we go off on all kinds of different tangential theories about why was this one good and that wasn't good. Or, or we'll see later, why does Cain have a mark? And we'll talk about that briefly. But uh, we, we, can, we can ramble on. Is there detail in the way that, that Eve is saying it? Does she have a bad attitude? And we miss the point. We miss the point. And often when we miss the point, it's helpful to see what the New Testament has to say because the New Testament often doesn't uh, miss the point. The story is this. Abel brings his stuff. Cain brings his stuff. God liked one of them. God didn't like the other. So here's, here's the deal. It's, it's not about what they brought. Uh, and it's not about God's fickle attitude. Oh, I like goats. I don't like, I don't like rain, right? Uh, you know, I like red better than I like orange. I like orange better than I like red. It's, it's not that at all. Uh, in fact, Jude chapter, or pardon me, Jude 11 uh, and 1 John 3.12 both make it really clear. This is about their attitude. This is about their heart disposition as they come to God in these things. Abel, we don't hear about Cain and Abel a ton in the Bible from here on out. But Abel, as we'll see in a minute, is always regarded well. The Bible always says good things about Abel. And the Bible universally says bad things about Cain. He's the bad guy. Uh, he is the bad guy in the story. What seems to be happening here uh, is that Abel, seeing God for who he is in response to his holiness, in response to his goodness, brings what he has and gives it to God. He knows what God has done, right? God made absolutely everything. What does that mean? 
That means all the goats and the sheep and whatever he's shepherding came from God. It's a gift from God. And he returns the gift to God likewise. It's yours. I love you, God. Here is what I have to offer. And his heart is that of gratitude and worship and joy. And Cain, on the other hand, is like, well, I guess I owe the man upstairs something. I'll throw him a bone. Abel's doing it. I should do it. If I do this thing, maybe God will give me something. And at the end of the day, he ends up treating God more like a pagan God than the God of the Bible. Abel's response is that of righteousness, as we'll hear in uh, Hebrews. Abel loved God, and then so he gave to God. Cain, on the other hand, is doing kind of false religion stuff. If I give God this stuff, God will give me something else. Now, here's the problem with that. That's really normal human stuff to do. This, this is our battle. This is our battle. Are you here this morning because God loves you and you want to be with God's people and you want to hear from God's word and you want to come worship Jesus? Or are you here because it's Sunday and you're supposed to be here? Yeah, it's Sunday. And honestly, sometimes there's times you're like, I'm a mess right now. I don't even want to go, but I know I'm going to go. Because you know what I need? I need the word. That's what I need. I need to hear from God. I need to hear someone tell me the truth of the gospel. I need someone to tell me that God, the God of the universe loves me, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross and rose from the dead to make me his own. I need to hear this morning that not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I need that truth, and so do you. And there are times when I am a wreck, and maybe I don't want to go hear that truth. Maybe you don't want to come hear that truth. But when you come in and you hear it, you say, oh yeah, that's who I am. The God of the universe has called me holy. The God of the universe has called me clean. I can't earn God's love. God had to come down and save me in the person of Jesus. I can't get up to God to get to him. And I need that. And you need that. And, and frankly, we need this every day. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. To meet with the God of the universe and remember who he is in worship. Because if all it is is you hear, oh, God loves me, and so now I feel better about myself, it actually misses because it just terminated on you. The whole point is that it terminates on God. The problem with Cain here, I think, is his worship terminated on him. He's doing it because it's what he's supposed to do. And here's why I don't think it's just, Cain, you should start growing some goats. So the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. That's his response. He's angry. He doesn't check his heart. He wanted God to throw him a parade. God, look what I've done for you. God, why, what do you mean you're going to disregard it? I gave it to you. It's oatmeal or whatever. Right? It's grain. Wheat stuff. Wheat, oats, wheats, they're their thing. He wanted God to throw him a parade. Is that why you read the Bible? No. We don't read our Bible so God will pat us on the back and say, good job, you got in the Bible for 15 minutes today. Yay, it's you. God's not giving you the Bible to throw you parades. God's giving you the Bible because he wants to speak with you. You want God to speak with you. You open his word and you listen. Well, if he just give me something, if he just give me a sign, if he just talk to me, then I'd know he loves me. He has spoken to you. 
He's spoken to the world so clearly in His Son by coming and living and dying and raising again. And He's given us His Word that reveals us the truth about Himself. And we don't get into the Word and we don't pray and we don't set the timer. And good for you, you got up at 6.55. We don't do it because God needs us. We do it because we need God. Abel doesn't. Abel knows he needs God. I don't think Cain does. And I'll, I'll, we'll kind of survey some stuff in the New Testament to get there because I have to prove that to you, right? I can't just say it. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And then hear what God says. Nothing about oatmeal, but listen instead. The Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? And why is your face falling? If you do will do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God warns him. He tells him. He doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, start growing goats. He says, hey, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Look at what you're doing. See how you're living. Turn and live. Do well. Do good. Cain, this isn't about you. Abel knows, I think. That this is about God. For Cain, it's about keeping up appearances. For Abel, it's about worshiping God. And here's warning, right? How kind is God? Hey, if you do well, you will be accepted. Right? He's not saying, it's over for you now. He's just repent. He's telling him to repent. And he warns him. This thing inside of him, which is manifesting as him, making much of his name by going to the altar and worship, by him making a big deal out of him, it's dangerous. There's, there's something going on here that won't go well for him. And then it gets worse. Verse 8. So his response then is not repentance. His response then is not stop doing the uh, fake religion stuff and start doing the real religion stuff, or however you want to say that. We usually use those two juxtaposed super pejoratively just as a tool that's helpful, but stop doing the things that are about you, start doing the things that are about God. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, so he lured him out into the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Again, there's no gratuitous detail. We're just supposed to hear that and go, point in time here in Genesis 4 in the history of humanity this has never happened we're supposed to look at this and stop and think and we live in a time and a place where we're honestly inundated with this there, there is so little sanctity of life on any level in 2015 and so few of us are willing to sit there and look at it and say what what's happening why do we not value the human person? What? It's just the news. Someone's on the phone. Oh, hey, that's happening in some country that's really far away that doesn't have anything to do with me. That's, that's a bummer. Moving on. What? See, Genesis 1 and 2 spent so much time meticulously showing us how God, the sovereign of everything, made and formed and created everything. And the apex of that is the human person. 
that every human being is an image bearer of God, worthy of dignity and respect. It's so callous. It's so callous. Moses doesn't feel any need to validate him. Because he's just like, stop. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He knows. <laughs> now Abel's, or Cain's going to pretend he doesn't. He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, and the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. From your hand, you did it, Cain. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. Adam and Eve get exiled from the garden. Cain, following in their pattern, gets exiled here from where he's at. I think this is the beginning. We see this again, right? This is the same thing that happens to God's people in 586. They worship the ten gods. They do their own thing, and they got to go. It's the same thing. Uh, this is the thing that blows me away about the Bible. Uh, we can look at it and we can think, oh, yeah, that's so distant and that's so far. And yet when we actually hear the story and just like let the story speak, the history speak, nothing new. Nothing new. Or old, outdated maybe. Cain said to the Lord, now listen to Cain's words here. These blow me away. My punishment is greater than I can bear. What does he say? Lord, you are so right. That was an image bearer of God, worthy of dignity and respect. You're right. What have I done, Lord? His response is, the consequence is too much. All of a sudden, I wish I hadn't done that because now I'm exiled. Not, I wish I hadn't done that because that was my brother. His heart is still broken, right? He's not worshiping God. He's worshiping himself. He's not bummed out that he sinned. He's bummed out that he got caught. Fourteen, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He knows. They think he's dangerous all of a sudden because he's that guy. He's, 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 he's literally that guy. Don't go in the field with Cain. He's that guy. He's dangerous. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Now, again, here's, here we get speculative. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. So I've heard all kinds of wacky things about that mark. It's a tattoo. Well, God doesn't own a tattoo then. I mean, he could do a tattoo because he's God and he could do anything, but, like, I don't think so. Um, and if I might, if I hear one more time that the, the, the writing on Jesus' leg in Revelation is a tattoo, we're going to have to do a Greek study on that because that's not happening there either. But that's, <laughs> that's my own just venting now. So back here, the mark. Um, in the, I think it's in the Midrash or in the Talmud, like ancient uh, rabbi writing. Uh, they think this might be a big scary wolf. 
which is sort of cool because my kids were reading Little House on the Prairie, and there's these buffalo wolves in one that are big, scary wolves, and we were reading it last night. I thought, well, yeah, that's cool, but honestly, we don't know, and it doesn't matter. That's not the point of the story is the wolf. Again, I think, I think we can take a story like this, and we can get off on this stuff and get distracted. What is this, Mark? I don't know. What do I know? Well, God just said, don't touch Cain. Cain has to live with himself now. Cain is stuck. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. And also, I, I mean, talk about an Ecclesiastes-type moment. Abel, the good guy, dies. Cain is exiled, but he lives. God's not done with him. As we see in the New Testament, it doesn't go well for Cain. It doesn't, Cain's story doesn't end well. God's vengeance is in God's timing, and it's up to God. And I think that's what's happening here. More than, I'm going to protect you and take care of you. I think God's timing and God's punishment is God's punishment for Cain. Um, but I get that from the New Testament, from uh, Jude 11, uh, 1 John. I think, I think that's what it indicates. And that's also I'd also say, I think. Because I'm not sure. It's hard to say. I'm just saying what, this is what I think it is. There's some things I'll say, yes, that is absolutely what it says. That one, uh, I'm a little less sure. But that's okay. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest, uh, lest any who found him should attack him. And Cain went away, was exiled, from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, what do we do with this? Right? I said we're going to do three things. How do we handle it? How does this fit in with the big picture? Oh, yeah, and why is this here? There's a purpose. So when we're reading Genesis 1 through 11, as we're going through it, this span in biblical history is covering a lot of space. A lot of space is getting covered from 1 to 11. A lot is happening. Moses is running somewhere with the narrative. He's getting to Abraham and his family, this family that God's going to bless the world through. And he's trying to do everything he can to get from this thing where God created everything, where human bro beings broke everything, and then he's marathoning to Abraham from there. Because really, next week we'll be in the, the Sons of God story, which, you know, that one's pretty interesting, but we'll get there next week. Uh, you know, then we get to the flood for a couple of weeks, uh, and then we get to the Tower of Babel, and we move on and we get through this. But if you sit down and read Genesis 1 through 11, it's not a lot to read. Right? You get from, from, from Adam and Eve to Abraham rather quickly. Uh, but what we do see here is this horrible and horrific downward slope to Moses. So, so if we take it seriously, what's happened here is, is as we read it and as we see it, if we allow ourselves to be shocked by this story, we allow ourselves to be shocked by Adam and Eve rather than be like, yeah, Adam and Eve, I know, learned about it in Sunday school, and we colored in the fig leaves and stuff, which is all good stuff. I, I like it when we do that, and I like when my kids show me their drawings of the fig leaves colored in. Not wrong, not bad, good stuff. But what we can't let it do is ever get to the point where we're not shocked by it. They had everything in God, and they traded it all away. But I'd be shocked by that, because if you're a Christian, here's the deal. You have everything in Jesus. You have everything everything in Jesus, and when we choose sin over Christ, we trade everything for something else, just like Adam and Eve. And, and we must be shocked here uh, by the fact that not only did it start bad with Adam and Eve, it's getting worse. It's, it's a downhill slope to the flood narrative. It's going poorly for them apart from God. 
And the one guy in this story who was close to God gets killed. It's going poorly because the downward slope. So how do we handle something? What do you do with a text like this? You're, you're, it's January like 3rd, right? It's not today, but just in case you're wondering. But it's January 3rd. You're going to give your annual Bible reading plan another run. Last year you made it to Exodus. This year you're going to make it to Joshua. And I would say if you make it to Joshua and you stop, just pick it up and keep reading. It's okay. It's not your righteousness. It's a way for, it's a tool for you to get in there. But, but I digress, right? So it's January 3rd, you're in Genesis 4, and you read it, and you're like, what do I do with a text like this? And then you skim your Bible, and you realize, how long till I get to Matthew? I want to hear about Jesus. Well, I, I think that, that it can feel that way, and I, and I think part of that's because, honestly, in our, in our churches and sort of in evangelical Christianity generally, we don't know what to do with the Old Testament at all. Um, and we miss that this is here for a reason. And we even miss that this is the Bible that Jesus had, right? Jesus didn't have the book of Revelation. It was God's revelation, but he didn't have it, right? This is what Jesus had. This is what Jesus is preaching from and working with. If Jesus is preaching all the time, this is what he's preaching from, right? He's preaching from this stuff, as we're going to see in a second. He preaches from this narrative. Jesus uses this, okay? So what do we do with this? I think one of the most valuable things you can do, uh, both how to handle and tackle a text like this, but also just in your own personal devotional life. Now, we, so we live in Seattle, and so all of our words are broken. You, you can't use the word spirituality, broken, means something different, right? We, can't, we have trouble using words like meditation, even though the Bible uses the word meditation. When the Bible uses the word meditation, we're not talking about zeroing out and zoning out. We're talking about setting our mind on the things of the Lord. Uh, that's why we do, we do a fighter verse every week. We put up a verse that this church is memorizing together. So we get on our hearts and we get on our minds. We're thinking about it and thinking about Jesus together. And so one of the things that I think is really helpful is when you approach a text like this, you just ask it some questions. What does this show me about God? What do we just see about God in this text, in this narrative? Two things just really, really, really stick out. One, God is very gracious. As far as we can tell, Cain does not repent. But at least once God gives him that option. Romans tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Uh, if you look at life and you say, why do the, why do the good and the young, why do the good die young and, and the old live to be rich and old and mean sometimes, right? Not always, but you know, why did that guy get to keep going and be a tycoon? And why did that guy die at 21? He really loved Jesus and he didn't. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. That guy's being given a chance day in, day out to repent and turn to Jesus. Day in, day out, God is kind. God is also just. He doesn't let it go. Sometimes we don't see it in this life, but here he doesn't let it go. He deals with Cain rather directly. He exiles Cain from his presence, and who knows what else, because we get like three verses on it. He's out, right? He's even gracious to Eve. He gives, at the end of the story, we're not going to go there, but you know, he even gives her a, a kid, Seth, in, in his place. We don't really hear about her much, but Seth's been in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is very gracious, but what do we see about then? The next question is, and this part, Christian meditation came, is, what does it show us about God? What does it show me about me? 
What does it show me about me? What does it show us about the human condition? You know, first of all, we as human beings, I, you, have a tendency to works righteousness. That's a fancy way to say that you think you that God owes you. You think you've got God on your payroll, your spiritual payroll. You read your Bible. You showed up on Sunday. Hey, you showed up to a Bible stu- two Bible studies and three community groups. God really owes you this week. He's got to give you something. That's why I'm right. Here is the wonderful and beautiful liberating news of the gospel that available to you right now if you do not know Jesus and given to you if you do is the fact that you have full access to the Lord of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came to give us access to the Father and to fill us with the Spirit, and that you and I, if you are a Christian, get to live with God now and forever. And when He restores all things, like off the hook live with God forever, full and completely unfettered with God forever. And yet we keep coming back to the report. We, we keep coming back to try and say, well, God, I brought you the sacrifice. I did the thing. I brought you the oatmeal. You owe me. Now, A, that's sin. It's wrong. But B, it's weighty. I mean, there's a reason. You ever wonder, why does this church seem to always love me on Sunday when we did church? Big church? It's our big church, right? Everybody's welcome here. Why, why do we do that? Isn't that for kids' ministry? You know how often I need to hear that truth and that reality? That I am a son of God, not because of what I've done, but everything. But the son of God par excellence, the real, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity did in my place. You are more loved than you can possibly imagine. And, and we take this fact, as I said earlier, not height nor depth nor power nor principality to ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We take that reality and say, well, I still have to cross the gap. God must need me to do something to make myself right with him. You're free. You're liberated. And we keep doing the same stuff Cain was doing in four. Not only that, I think it's really important for us to see Cain had a chance to not do what he did. There are at least three steps here. Cain, stop it. Walking in the field. Hey, boy, you want to come out in the field? He could have turned around. At some point in time, that's what's called speculative theology. What if Cain had turned around? We don't know. Doesn't matter. He didn't. What we do know is that he did what he did. But he could have not done it. As you approach your life, there may be sins you have a tendency to be drawn to. But rarely, rarely do you wake up and go, oh, hey, I'm knee deep in the middle of my, uh, my sin of choice. How'd that happen? Step one, step two, step three. Step four, step, oh, now I'm here. I'm in step six. I'm here. Stop. I'm at step five and a half. Step six is sin. Stop. Don't be Cain. Right? You look at it and you stop and say, I'm walking down that road to the place where I should not go. Maybe I should turn around. Right? And I think we find ourselves so often in this spot where we're asking, 
how far can I go before I've sinned? Where's the line? Great high schooler, middle schooler question. Where's the line? Where, where am I in sin here? Wrong question. Wrong category. You're either going towards Jesus or towards sin. Towards Jesus or towards sin. One or the other. We turn from one and go to the other. We go towards Christ, towards Him, towards loving Him, towards His grace and mercy, or going towards something else. Just like Dan. And then his response, of course, is worldly remorse. His response is not, what have I done to my brother? His response is, what have I done to myself? So often that's our question. I got busted. What have I done to myself? Who cares about you? What about Abel, man? What about the people you're sinning against? What about them? That's repentance. That's looking at a stop and saying, I'm sinning against God and sinning against others. This is, this is David when he realizes, oh, what have I done? Lord, against you only have I sinned. He's not doing what Saul does. You go to Saul and you look at, why isn't Saul the king anymore? Saul's the first king, if, you, if you're unfamiliar with the story. Saul's the first king, David's the second king. Saul, in his brilliance, uh, is about to go out into a battle. They're waiting for Samuel the prophet to show up to make the sacrifice so they can go in and wreck shop on their enemies. Uh, they're, he's late. Saul does what he should not do, knows he should not do as the king, and, and everyone's starting to disperse and leave. His hope is in the ritual, not in the God who moves. And so he offers his sacrifice. Samuel shows up and says, what the heck, what you done? Well, everyone was leaving, and so I did the thing I wasn't supposed to do. So you sinned so everyone would stay instead of trusting God that if Samuel's 15 minutes late, his bus was late, man, he will be there. That God can't do what he'll do? So you sin so God would move, so you, so you can, again, works righteousness. I did the ritual so God will do the thing. No, no, God's something God's so, so much better. Trust the Lord. His prophet will make it. He'll figure it out. And what does he do? He sort of just blame shifts all day long. Well, you weren't here and you were late. And da, 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 da. David gets busted by Nathan the prophet. What does he do? Ah! You're right. Now, he has to get busted. It's a sad story. He gets busted for sure. But even in getting busted, his response is genuine repentance. Now, the third question in our meditation exercise, if you will, setting our minds on, what do I do with this text? Is I say, okay, what does this show me about God? What does this show me about me? And what, what is the answer to, how is Jesus the answer to my problem? The answer to my works righteousness is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I realize that I'm being a Pharisee, a Pharisee legalist who's doing stuff so God will love me, uh, I'm reading my Bible so that God will love me. I'm reading my Bible so God will, will bless me rather than reading it for Him. So you know what your answer there is? You stop reading your Bible, don't ever read it again. Wrong. Wrong. Well, I'll try again tomorrow. No. Try again right now. It's a gift. Stop it. It's your work righteousness. Remember why you're reading it. Just come back to the truth. Wake up. Jesus has done this because God's revealed himself to me most clearly in his son. God's spoken many times in many ways. Uh, first to our fathers by the prophets. These last days he's spoken to us by his son. Read it. It's Hebrews 1. It's awesome. 
Remember what you're doing. This isn't just a book and you're not just earning points. You have everything in Jesus. Just keep reading. So how does this then fit in with the big picture? This little story about a couple of brothers and just this horrible thing. The reality is we are on this downward slope that we'll see towards the flood. And we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But the reality is, and what's really, really clear from the early chapters of Genesis, is that God made everything good and that human beings broke it. God has given you many, many wonderful gifts in your life that you break. God has given you life and breath, and you use it for rebellion against him. You use it to sin against him. You use it to do religion. You use it to do things so that you can feel good about yourself. You gave somebody a coat? Great. Now you throw yourself a parade because you were generous to somebody. Did you make the coat? Did you give yourself a body that could earn the money to pay for it? It's all from God. It's a, it, you take what God has given to you and you give it to others in responding to the fact that the reality is that if you are a Christian, you have absolutely everything in Christ. And so because I have everything in Jesus, I could take the things that Jesus has given me and given it to others, not so that I can earn anything, but it is an act in response of worship. Humans have broken the world, and as we see here in Forest Beyond Repair. It's not just like Adam and Eve get exiled, and then uh, Cain's going to fix it. Nope, making it worse. Um, and, and so what's amazing here is that the New Testament uses this as, as an amazing pointer story to hook it up. Yeah, it's on this downward slope, if you will, to the flood. But the flood is really on an upward slope to the cross and to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, here's what I mean. Uh, if you'd go with me to uh, Matthew 24. Again, a pointer, a historian to point us. This is the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in Matthew. We're in chapter 23, and we're starting in verse 29. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying... If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. If I'd been there, I wouldn't have done that. Oh yeah? Jesus says. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Uh, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you, uh, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from blood, the blood of righteous. Now hear this, Abel. There he is. To the blood of Zechariah. Now why are these two guys mentioned? Abel's the first righteous person that we hear in the canon of the Old Testament dying. Zechariah is the last chronologically. He's saying all these righteous people, and he has in mind prophets, people that God has sent to the people to see how to live and be pointed back to God. But you don't listen to them. Whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar, that's Zechariah. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, the stones, those who are sent to it. How often, now this is a really interesting illustration, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood of vipers. Uh, uh, I was going to say vipers. I don't know why I was getting stuck there. There's a brood of vipers passing. Her brood under her wings. That would be a bad scene, by the way. And you, 
We're not willing. Now, here's an interesting thing that's considered like a general rule of what happens uh, in the mind of a uh, Israelite at this point in time. Apparently, and here's my agrarian ignorance coming out. Apparently, it was at least said at this time that what mother hens would do is they would brood over their chicks. So these aren't the eggs, they're hatched, right? They would brood over their eggs if there was a fire. And the mother hen would actually get burnt in the fire and the chicks would live. It's interesting that he uses that illustration because he's going to die on the cross to gather them in. He's going to die so people don't have to. It seems that there's even more to that little illustration. Not just that he's this um, you know, kind, um, nurturing vibe of come on in, come on in, which I think is true, absolutely true. But, but it seems that his illustration is even saying, I'm going to lay my knife down for you if you'd only come, if you'd only come, if you'd only listen, if you'd only be like Abel and not like Cain. But he's going to go further than that. Or the Bible will go further than that, pardon me. Uh, I'm in Hebrews. I'm in chapter 11. This is called the Hall of Faith. We won't read the whole thing. But I need you to see something that's happening here with this Abel image, that, that God's pointing back to the, the binary choice of Abel or Cain. Verse 11, now faith, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the, convictions, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe, all of a sudden we're in Genesis, Hebrews is using Genesis all of a sudden. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, here's again why I think we can look to Abel and say this is what his offering was about. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The New Testament actually thinks we can still learn from Abel, by the way. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found. Fascinating story. Genesis rolls on. Because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists. That's interesting. And that he rewards those who seek him. Now what he doesn't mean here is that Abel thinks he's drawing near to God so that his life will be healthy and wealthy. Because that's not how the story goes. It's, it's interesting, right? In the same paragraph, we're talking about reward. We're talking about Cain and Abel. We're talking about Abel. What's his reward? We'll get there. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he commended the world, uh, pardon me, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that comes by faith. And he gets into Abraham and on and on and on and on, right where Genesis 11, 1 through 11 is going. Now, turn your page with me, or maybe a couple pages, depending if you have a tiny Bible or not. Um, skip down to verse 11 and 39. It says this. So we're going to sum up that, the list. In all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, 
since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. At the end of this whole giant list, he's saying, those guys all love God and we're waiting for something awesome. You guys live here on the other side of the resurrection. You have something awesome. His name is Jesus. It's a reward. And then skip down with me to 12 and 18. I would read it all because this is one of my favorite sections of the Bible, but we don't have time for that. Verse 18 says this. For you have not come to what may be touched. This is a Mount Sinai reference where Moses had the Ten Commandments. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice who was... uh, Words were made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, because it's holy. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Moses, said, I, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. So you, you've not come into the, the Torah with its re- regulations and the law with its regulations. You've come to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've come to Mount Zion and the city... Of the living God. This is for you if you are a Christian. We don't have time to get in the whole conversation. For you if you are a Christian. This points to the reality that God's going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And the heavenly Jerusalem. And to the innumerable angels and the feastal gatherings. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God the judge of all. And to the spirits of righteousness made perfect. And to Jesus. To Jesus. The mediator of a new covenant. Now here listen to this. And the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Is he going being poetic? Is he being flowery? Why is that there? Abel is a type. That's the fancy word for it, type. Abel is a type. He's a shadow. He's a word picture. He's a foreshadow. A righteous person had his blood shed when he was following Jesus, when he was following God. Jesus, God himself, comes, the only truly righteous person, the only person without sin. His blood is shed as he is honoring and following God, but his blood shed brings us into the reward, and the reward is Jesus. Abel's looking forward to it. We actually know what it is. This whole thing is pointing to Jesus. By that, the whole thing, I mean This whole thing that we're bored with in like September because it's 78% of the Bible in your Bible reading plan. When you miss that this whole thing is Luke 24, this whole thing is about Jesus. This thing's not boring. This thing's amazing. It is amazing, by the way. But that's another sermon for another day. But what we see then is that there's this downward slope here in 4 to Noah. But it's the upward slope to Christ our Savior. It's an upward slope to the story of what God is doing with broken things. God made all things good. He made all things right. He made all things perfect. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke it. And verse chapter 4 just shows us how bad, in fact, they did break it. It's this upward slope to Christ. It's this upward slope to the gospel that the, God's answer to the human problem is Jesus, is the grace and the mercy of God who dies in our place for our sins to make us not only right with God, but to give us life in God. We don't just stop there. Jesus didn't just come to deal with the fact that Abel sinned, which he did, or pardon me, Cain sinned, and the way we sinned. He didn't just come to deal with the sin. He came to end his exile. 
He's exiled away from the presence of God. When we live apart from God and apart from Jesus, we live apart from the presence of God, just like Cain. But Jesus Christ came and lived, died, rose, and sent us His Spirit. So yeah, our sin is dealt with. And if you love Jesus, you are absolutely right with God. And if you are not right with God, Jesus will make you right with God. But it's not just that your sin is dealt with, but now we get to live in the presence of the God of the universe in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't just fix one side of the Cain problem. He fixes both. He fixes both. You don't know him. You're here and it's Seattle, you're a Seattleite and you're like I was before I found him, before really he found me. You're here for a reason. You didn't end up here on accident. You're probably looking for something. I tell you what, you can search every one of the other options and all the other options are some cruddy ladder trying to get to God or get to experience or get to peace. This is the gospel of God who came down to get to us. If you do not know Jesus, today is the day. Repent and believe and turn to Christ. And if you are a Christian, are you listening? Are you listening to what Genesis 4 has for us? You don't have to live under works righteousness. Sin might be crouching at your door. Turn to Christ. Turn to the church. We'll help. People love you. You won't be rejected. You'll be accepted. It'll go well for you. We'll point you back to who Jesus is. Because sometimes you're even sitting there reading, I just need someone to tell me that Jesus loves me. <laughs> That's why we sing this song. We're singing it to God and we're singing it to each other. By the way, Jesus loves you. You don't need works righteousness. You don't need to earn your salvation. And in turn, because of this, because of this reality, we turn to worship him. He came down to get to us. He's the object of our affection. He's the object of our worship. He's perfect and wonderful and great. So we're going to transition to communion. And as we do, this is for, this is for Christian people who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when we do this, we come to this table and we remember his body broken and blood shed for us. So when we come to this table, we don't come mourning. We come celebrating because we are sinners saved by grace. Paul calls us to consider our sin and to take it seriously. So before we take this cup, we consider ourselves and we repent of our sin. But when we come up to take this, we take this as a celebration of the fact that we are people made new because of Jesus, because of his body broken, blood shed. And by the way, he's risen from the dead. So I will pray for us. And when you're ready, we're going to get up and we're going to celebrate what God has done in Jesus. We're going to sing and we're going to take communion and we're going to celebrate together the gospel of Jesus and worship Jesus. Lord God, we do thank you. We just renounce and denounce everything in us that wants to do works righteousness. We renounce and denounce our sin and our desire to turn to it. And we just proclaim that we desire to turn to you. Please empower us to live our life for you, enjoying you with everything we've got. We know who we are. We know what you've saved us from, and so do you. There's nothing that, that's hidden from your sight. And you've said it's finished. So may we live as the loved, holy, turning from sin, turning to Jesus, people of God that you've made us to be. Help us to repent of our sin and turn to you and live. 
Help us to know you and love you and serve you. Help us, Jesus, to make much of your name. Help us to carry this message and this pronouncement that you save sinners to the ends of the earth. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.